let's yeah. do it. Um, okay. Neil Beck, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and just a, so a little bit of context for people who don't uh, know you or, 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 or me either. Um, you are a supporter of Soap Percussion and have been for, for quite a while. And um, you're someone who I don't think I've actually met in person yet other than this. Um, and, but we've corresponded over email and you've, you've seen us play several times and, and have always had nice words to say. And you're always emailing and very – it's just been nice to connect with you over email but now face-to-face finally. Um, can you just – before we get into sort of um, – politics or any of the other stuff that you do can you tell me a little bit about yourself like what take me back to like baby neil what got you interested in doing what you do and um and what got you interested in like weird percussion music i guess like, oh, okay how, how, did you, how did you intersect with us start go, but go oh, back okay. to baby neil okay so first i have met i have met you face to face at your dinner pardon. okay pardon me so so but obviously, there were very many. It was it was a it was, it was big event, and that was pre-pandemic. So I've sort of blocked yeah, out. That I part know, of my life. Is, yeah, I don't know everything. So, um, as I, as I was saying before we started, I have literally no skill in playing music. Um, my wife will tell you that. Um, <laughs> perhaps I like percussion because I, I I'm particularly unmelodic, but I mm-hmm. like um, um, minimalism. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so, um, I, and I was really, so I won't tell you about baby Neil Beck, but I'll tell you about high school Neil Beck where I and a bunch of us were very annoying people. So we would, we lived in Eastern Queens, Flushing, um, back when it was still con- conservative Jewish. Uh, and we would go out to the city every weekend night to listen to music. Mm. And so we would go to Columbia, to the Columbia, uh, Columbia had a great I don't know if it still exists, probably doesn't. Columbia, Princeton, either Computer Music Center or Experimental Music Center. I think so Columbia, Charles, Columbia still, I think, still has that aspect pretty yeah. hard. Pretty, pretty so hard. Charles Warren mm-hmm. and uh, Harvey Solberger, who eventually ended up at UCSD. Mm-hmm. So we would go there. I don't know if we knew what we were doing. And then we had this series of concerts. There, were, there was some out, um, person who wanted to paper these concerts that wouldn't fill up. So for like $5 a year, you could go to any concert you wanted, many of which were, were modern. Well, so what, what, doing, can, I, can I just ask you just as a high, high school Neil Beck, yeah. why Charles Warren? <laughs> like, oh, because he was at Columbia. So we just went to Columbia. So we had a lot of friends who went to the Columbia. I, I wasn't the Saturday morning. They had their special science things. Mm-hmm. So we going to Columbia was a natural, it was a long way away from Eastern Queens, but, but it was a natural thing to do. And I don't think we made a choice. We just said, oh, let's do this. It's Colombian. We went and we sort of liked it. And but was was there like a, I'm trying to, like, so Charles Warren for you as a high school kid was normal, like to go yeah, listen to. Like, yeah. <laughs> as a 42 year old man, I still feel like listening to Charles Warren would not be a normal thing for me to do. But yeah, like, probably not. For you in high school, much. though, that was a, that's interesting to me. Well, I, I mean, I think we also screwed up a lot. So <laughs> we went to a Lamont Young concert, uh-huh. a string quartet, and it was one of the only ones we walked out on at the intermission. Oh, uh, okay. We were, you know, this, this, this was super Lamont Young, you know, one note, five minutes, one note, the next. No, mm-hmm. um, you know, nothing else. And we couldn't figure it out. So I think we're just obnoxious people who like to do things 
you know, anybody could like Beethoven. Also, you know, math. I was, I were all mathematical, so I, you know, I like mm. Bach, mm -hmm. uh, like intricate rhythms and things, like yeah, computers, yeah. like toys, like like odd sounds. Well, it's interesting to me that, um, and again, like I'm, I'm basically ignorant of Charles Warren's music. Um, yeah, I probably other, am at this point too. Other than sort of a general idea of that style of music, and I'm curious, like you know, you got a bunch of there's your background is Richard Serra sculptures and yes. uh, you mentioned minimalism and that's something that so so does a lot of with Steve Reich and Terry Riley and of and course that's why well, I love you guys but what what I, I kind of can't picture two more diametrically opposed musics than Charles Warren and Steve Reich like or, oh. or you know so like how how where where did where did well, I was um, giving you an example yeah yeah of we just fell into this mm -hmm. and so so I'll tell you how we get to Steve Reich mm -hmm. which is Many years pass. Don't do much of anything. I'm end up at UCSD. Mm -hmm. You know, UCSD had great modern theater, and you, of course, know their music department, right. which is, I think, the best modern music department in the country. You may be at NYU. I'm at NYU. Well, I would, I would, I wouldn't disagree with you in the sense that it, it's a great if you're a percussionist who really wants to go and research and just buckle down and really dig into like a laboratory experience of modern music, like UCSD is the place to do it. Yeah. So again, just like with Columbia, I didn't know really much what I was doing, mm -hmm. but stumble over to their, their group was called Sonar. Mm -hmm. And again, sort of liked it. And then again, just by chance, Steve Schick was there. I mean, mm -hmm. nothing to do with me, obviously. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I mean, Steve is incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess when I really got a percussion, he did a concert. Uh, he had a group called uh, Redfish Bluefish. You must mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still, a, you know, I was a student, so they must change all the time. And it was a concert, and they did two pieces. Schoenberg is a uh, Stummi. It's a German Stimmung? name. Stimmung. Schumung. Stimmung. Yeah, I think so. It was a percussion piece. I think it's. I think stock. Oh. uh I'm not sure to be honest. Oh, you're not up to date on your. On your <laughs> no, I told you. Well, uh, Stimmung, I believe, is a, a piece by um, Stockhausen. Yeah, Stockhausen. So he did that, and then he did Reich's. Uh, was Reich's called Drumming or something? Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is in the late '80s or something. Yeah. And I just loved it. Mm. And Steve is just an incredible person. I mean, incredible performer. Mm -hmm. I got to know him a little bit because yeah, yeah. he didn't have that many groupies or that many groupies on the faculty. There, myself and a friend would go there, and then finally, when I got married again, my wife would go, mm -hmm. and uh, and I was, you know, so, so it, it was great. But Steve, you know, you know, was just an incredible person, and also I love, you know, that a great modern soprano, Janos, um, uh, not Stoker, who's a great um, double bassist. Um, um, anyway, it was super cool, super mm. great. Not Edgar, it wasn't Edgar Meyer, was it? No, he's very famous. Um, okay. He taught my wife how to cut tape in, in Music One. That was the kind of place UCSD was. Anyway, so we just started going. And so we, we were at UCSD, and I was very happy. And then NYU sort of said, you should come to NYU. And I told my wife, if a mere mortal can live in Greenwich Village, you know, without being a stockbroker, what could be better than this? And my wife said, yeah, but she's very nice. So we started looking around, we went to BAM and things. I think I must have first heard you guys. Could have been Bang on a Can Marathon? 
I, I I wouldn't be surprised if that was where we crossed paths. I mean, that, that's yeah. where a lot of roads intersect at the Bang on yeah. a Can marathons. Yeah. Yeah. So we were going to Bang on a Can. I would take my family, and both of my daughters would go for me for with father for Father's Day because that's when it was until about they put their foot down and said, "Sorry, we're not doing that anymore." <laughs> but it was super cool. And so I heard you guys and some other people, and loved you. You were great. You know, and Steve Ship was also there he brought and one year brought his air horn and things I'm not sure. well he's yeah he well he was one of the original members of the bang on a can all-stars right. too yes. so like yeah. he that he has a lot of ties in with that scene and so yeah well what were you doing you said you were on faculty at US, ucsd yeah what were you what were you teaching there i was teaching political science political science so i'm a quantitative political scientist and what got you into that and what, oh. and what is quantitative political science pardon me okay. for just asking the dumb question here it, it's failed mathematicians <laughs> so I, I went to Rochester uh-huh. to be a math major, which I was, but not a very good one. I have a degree, but uh, my teachers did not encourage me to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always liked social science. Mm. And I thought at the time economics, so sociology was sort of backwards at the time. Uh, I had friends who went to Columbia where sociology was more interesting, mm-hmm. and they became sociologists, the study of sociology. At Rochester, political science is really fascinating. Just again, sheer luck, just like Steve Schick being at UCSD. So William Riker was there. I, of course, had never heard of William Riker. He was one of the first people to do game theory in political science. So he was more theoretical. Mm -hmm. But he also encouraged people to do serious statistical work. So, you know, he said, take a graduate, take the graduate econometrics course and things. He was just great. So he was, uh, he's all of our fathers. Mm. I mean, the same way that Steve or I don't know who the father of percussion is, but modern percussion. There were people, yeah, I mean, Steve was definitely someone who was pushing the bound. He was at the tip of the spear for a lot of what yeah. we do. So, yeah, so Riker was. And so I really liked it. And Rochester was a weird kind of place where just like you could go in, in New York and hear Charles Warren in or just walk in and do that, you could take, you know, PhD courses. And I was a terrible mathematician. But uh, in political science, being a terrible math, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, and perhaps even the half-eyed myopic man is king. So I could do that sort of stuff. And it was great. I loved it. So, you know, and then I went to Yale. I thought I'd do more, but they didn't do it. But then I went, finally got a job at UCSD after setting a record for the longest amount of time it takes to finish a dissertation. (laughs) Uh, I thought I was going to end the Vietnam War, but didn't do that. Um, and so, and the UCSD was one of the, again, brand new, play, you know, so every department at UCSD is a bit like the music department. Mm-hmm. You know, brand new school. Mm-hmm. I was like the eighth person hired in the department. And their mission at everything was just to be cutting edge, mm-hmm. whatever you wanted. Sometimes that worked out. So sociology ended up being very historical and very non quantitative uh, economics had the best time series people in, in, in the world. Um, UCSD is, you know, world, builds a world-class political science department somewhere in the top 10. Mm-hmm. It's very rare for a new department. Um, and so that, so I was doing, you know, teaching statistics and uh, teaching some, you know, political economy and things and, you know, okay. like that. Can I ask you, like, as a teacher, I mean, there's things that I, I, don't, I don't want to assume that, that teaching skills in political science are that much different than teaching skills in percussion in the sense that there's some fundamentals that 
you know, every student's different. Everybody's got their own worldview. Um, there's a couple fundamentals that I feel like if after four years they study with me, if they just took away these three things out of the 400 I've told them, I'll be happy. When you're teaching, you know, political science, what are some, what are some things that you, you really want your students after studying with you to take away? Oh, well, I'll start with on the good side is that with, uh, when you have something that's a random sample and you have enough observations, then it's going to be normal distributive. So you can say all sorts of things about it. That's essential limit theorem. So that's really, so that makes all the statistics work. Mm-hmm. When you don't have large samples, it, it doesn't, but we usually do. Uh, that's the good side. And then the other thing that I really want people to do, and the, the real innovation in, in uh, not not just political science, but econ- economics, uh, uh, statistics, is causality. Mm. So we used to run a bunch of regressions on different countries, and you find the countries that are more this or more that. But um, starting in, oh, well, we knew about, again, everything that's new is old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so this goes back to, to the 20, 30s and so forth, and goes back to Ari Fisher and experiments, but it sort of felt was less relevant and then it became rediscovered in probably the 1990s. And so the big thing is, uh, I guess the mantra is that co- uh, correlation is not causality. I was just going to say, I mean, that's, that's the sort of um, the logical fallacy that gets thrown up a lot. I hear, I, I've been seeing that a lot recently. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and people talk about it in relation to gun violence. They talk about it in yes. relation to gang violence or whatever, like, you know, all these different uh, societal Everything. issues. Yeah. Um, well, what, Sorry, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like. Oh, okay. So, 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 so again, so correlation is not causality. Mm-hmm. And then the nice thing is that it's a negative, you know, you can't do much. But actually, we've discovered lots of ways to sort of do clever causal things. And some of it's experimental. So NYU, for example, is one of the centers of doing this stuff experimentally, where you have a, um, you pay people different amounts to vote in a lab and you see if, what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not super big on that. But then there's a whole bunch of other people who are looking out in the field and they get these sort of cool, um, what are called natural experiments. Um, so uh, you can, so I mean, just give you a, a simple you know, example. Um, people who go to charter schools are different than people who don't go to charter schools. And so you can't compare people who went to a charter school with people who didn't because they're just different. Their parents care more. They themselves chose to go to a charter school. So it would probably work for them. They went to put up with the discipline, mm-hmm. uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so then you get lucky. And so I was, the, the other thing I, I tell my students to take away is everything that's bad for people is good for social science and vice versa. So we had enough um, charter schools for everybody. We couldn't do very much, but we don't. And so fortunately for both political reasons, that is instead of just, if we just took the people who fit best over like private schools and we took the people whose parents are the pushiest or whatever, mm-hmm. that wouldn't work very well. But we do it randomly. And we do that for political reasons. But it works out great. So we can compare the people who got in randomly with the people who didn't get in, assuming they went to, to a public school. And that gives you the, the, the causal argument because that's just like an experiment. Mm-hmm. And there are just tons of these things 
in the social world. Um, Whenever, I mean, you keep you 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 you've used the word experiment several times, yeah. and there's just there's a there's a sort of. Um, I remember taking doing in psychology at a, I took a psychology course at Ohio State my freshman year, and I was poor. And me and my buddy were like, we're going to volunteer for all of the experiments that the psychology department is doing. So like, we went in and we had electrodes tied to our wrists, and we had to watch yeah. video, you know, all those things. And we got ten bucks afterwards. And we we're like, this is great! I can't believe this. You know, those feel like those were experiments that people were doing on me. And when, yeah. when you say experiment. Um, it's not exactly like you are experimenting on. Like, what, what do you mean when you say experiment? Well, so, so, so they're, they're often called quasi-experiments or natural experiments. So they're not, the control isn't there. So the experimenter um, is not saying you're going to get this or you're going to get that. Right. Or the doctor, you get the statin, you get the placebo. But because it's randomized, assuming they're not cheating. Mm-hmm. So you have to watch them, mm-hmm. the people who are choosing. So assuming they're not just taking the what they think are the best people or the people who are slipping them a hundred bucks under the table because right. they're the parents who are pushiest. Assuming it really is random, but but that's probably you know you, you can watch it and it's probably pretty good. Uh, it's like an experiment. So the people who get into the charter schools again are random. You know whether you get the so there's a treatment charter school or the controlled public school because these people are not going to. Um, if you're if you're in the charter school world, you're not going to a fancy private school. Mm-hmm. You're going to a public school if you don't get it. You're, you're poor, um, and so um, so it's like an, just like an experiment. Well, and so you can, you can do again as long as you're comparing apples and apples. Mm-hmm. So as long as there's something like a randomization. Do, when you guys talk, can you talk a little bit about like I mean the other thing too that I liked about being in school, I, I took a, a political ethics course. Um, okay, yeah, and it was fascinating. And I'm trying to imagine that taking that course now with people on Twitter, and I feel like th- that course just would not be able to be offered anymore because all we did every day, we walked in and he would just propose like insane situations to us. Okay, like we'd have to, we'd have to explain. Yeah, our, you know, whatever. And it was it was really fascinating. And I'm curious, like in in your world, in terms of what you do, like how do ethics intersect with this? And then how do you tease that out? Because I imagine there's some experiments that you'll run that the data will be true or verifiable, but the ethics that it sort of reinforces may not be what you want them to be. So how do you deal with that? Okay. Well, first of all, I deal with what is not what I want it to be. So people are, you know, people are self-interested. That's the, that was, you know, the basic mantra. I'm an artist, well, Neil. So everything is what I want it to be. It's not what it is. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 um, so, um, so we believe that people act more or less in their self-interest and, you know, again, in, you know, specific details, you know, they may do weird kinds of things, but by and large to expect people, you know, not to act in their self-interest is probably making a mistake. So, I mean, again, sometimes you have to sort of broadly define it. And then there are all sorts of, you know, ethical considerations. So the nice thing about these charter school experiments, I'll call them experiments, is that they are also ethical because that's the fairest way to choose. Mm. For other kinds of things, um, so for example, um, there's a lot of work on who gets kidneys. Mm. 
mm-hmm. you know, who has renal failure. Mm-hmm. Okay, from an economist's perspective, the most efficient way is to sell them. We don't do that, but that's the most efficient mm-hmm. way. Uh, we used to in um, um, Civil War, there was a draft, but you could buy your way out of the draft. So basically rich people or well-off people didn't get drafted. Even in Vietnam, before uh, Johnson, before, before the uh, draft lottery, it wasn't very hard for people who had skills to get out. Mm-hmm. Just like it isn't very hard if charter schools just admitted people by, um, you know, who is willing to fill out all the applications and things or who had the longest thing or who is willing to donate money, mm-hmm. people can do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, 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 um, so, so, so some of these things end up being fairer. So we end up, for example, then doing, you know, so, so yes. So for example, go back to kidneys. So uh, the dumb answer is sell them. That's fine. It makes a lot of sense, but it's not what we do. And it offends our sensibilities and things. Mm-hmm. Um, however, some very clever people who won the Nobel Prize have then figured out ways to set up sort of something a bit like a market where you can sort of trade them. So I used to do kidneys one, one-to-one. You had to find somebody who matched you. And then Al Roth, who won the Nobel Prize, said, oh, wouldn't it be better if A could give a kidney to B and B could give a kidney to C, and then C could do something for A. And that's also how we do medical school, how you get a residency and things. He won the Nobel Prize for this. So again, it's a mixture of, uh, so clever people um, realize you can't do certain kinds of things. Um, Economists just like to buy and sell things. Sometimes that's wrong. And it offends our moral sensibility. Sometimes we can't do it. Where does that, I mean, the thing, as you were talking about that, I mean, to me, it's like the economist's answer is like all at once the simplest and most prescient at this moment. It's like we got to these kidneys, let's sell them. Yeah. But at the, at the end of that logical road is that that's where the, like, the, um, the geneticist could say, well, if I have stem cells, I can grow kidneys, and then we could have a kidney store where nobody has to give up their kidneys, and we can sell kidneys at a low cost because now we can make kidneys. Oh, that might, okay. You that know what I mean? Make- like, but then all of a sudden, the ethical argument there, which is what we're all dealing with right now with Roe v. Wade, is abortion gets in the middle, and how we deal with stem cells, and now all of a sudden the ethic, ethic the ethics argument gets more complicated. Yes. Like, oh. where? How far down that rabbit hole do you go with your students? Okay, so so uh, until the semester, until the. the this coming fall semester, not too far at all, because I was mostly sort of trying to teach skills, mm-hmm. teach them how to think causally mm-hmm. and how to read articles and how to know what they could believe or what they could believe, not believe. Um, I've always wanted and I always liked including, um, I, I don't call it ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I call it justice because it's a social kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So what, what ought to be done? And um, we designed a um, major in public policy. And one of the required courses was a course in justice. So I don't know if you studied like Rawls. So how can you justify um, inequality? So Rawls said you can justify inequality only if um, it benefits the the, the least well-off people. Mm -hmm. And he set up this thing where suppose 
you're in what's called behind a veil of ignorance. You don't know where you're going to be. Mm-hmm. You don't know if you're going to be a rich person or a poor person. You don't know if you're going to be a peasant in India or a Silicon Valley engineer mm-hmm. or percussionist or political science professor. Or to choose. And or, yeah. What system? And so he says, well, I would, we would choose equality unless there was some other system that could actually make the le- less well-off better off. Now, that's very different than the economists who have this idea of efficiency, but they can't get beyond, um, if you can't make everybody better off, um, you can't tell. They don't deal very well with distribution, with inequality. Hmm. And one of the amazing things that's happened is in the last 10 years, really, um, economists have started to recognize how to deal with inequality, and we've got this great new data, uh, some of it from the IRS, some from other places, about how to deal with inequality. So one of my colleagues, for example, um, what should happen is that um, poor people should say, because uh, there are more poor people than rich people in democracy, let's increase tax rates. So let's raise the tax on the median person who's quite rich as high as possible. It doesn't happen. Tax rates are low. So a friend of mine goes out, one of my, my current dean actually, and they do surveys. And they find out that people actually care about things like fairness. And they think it's unfair. I, I think they're wrong, but th- that's just my view. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, because it's right. Why, why do we have such non-progressive taxes? And again, from a purely simple-minded economics perspective, since there are more poor people than rich people, if you have a simple democracy, and again, you can say, well, the rich people have lobbyists or whatever, but it turns out most people don't really think that you should tax the hell out of rich people. Maybe you should this go is, some, well, but they're it, not that sorry to, sorry to interrupt me. I mean, just as you okay. were talking, like it, um, I was, ha- I had, I have a very similar reaction about there's like justice versus fairness and all this stuff, yeah. like as it, as it pertains to like the student loan debt relief argument. There's right. a part of there's a part of me that absolutely is like, um, it's not. We need to help everybody out, right? Like everybody, like the people who are being taken advantage of with student loans or whatever, often are the lowest. You know, are people who are you know, like with a subprime mortgage or whatever. But then there's a part of me that's just like you can't just forgive all that. That's not fair. Like, <laughs> like absolutely. Like, you know, and, but but again, like that fairness thing often gets in in the way oh, of. So it's, and it's very important. But it often it gets in the way of what I feel like on paper is what I say I am, which is yeah. like, of course, everybody let's get let's let's relieve this debt for everybody. But then there's the other part of me that's just like, no. OK, <laughs> you know? so part of me, because actually, so I say in, in the fall, so I'm teaching a seminar, mm-hmm. which is the same set of skills, but is a, a bigger view on all of these issues, including more on things like justice and fairness, including um things about public opinion, you know, sort of non-statistic, well, non-causal skills. Mm-hmm. So on the first question on um, th- this question about student debt is who actually owes it? Th- that is, uh, so we often want to design, so basically if you have, let's suppose we sort of said, um, we'll forgive the first 20,000. So there's administrative cost to that. Now, 
who is getting screwed by that? The people who you know own more than that, or let's say the first 10,000. So who are they? Are they rich people? So tell with that. I mean, again, maybe, you know, or uh, is it so costly to figure out who these people are that we're better off just forgiving? Yeah. You know, so we always have this trade-off that there are these, yeah, yeah. you know, the Republicans view that there are all these uh, people on welfare who are undeserving. You know, going back to Ronald Reagan's mm-hmm. uh, welfare queen who yeah, had yeah, a Cadillac right. and eight different accounts and, you know, now, you know, who are going to the store and using food stamps to buy, mm-hmm. um, you know, steak and things like that because poor people shouldn't eat steak. Sorry. I, I, no, no, I, no, I don't know. I, 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 I'm ironic and my wife tells me my students often miss my irony. No, I, I know your intent. I mean, I, these are all arguments that I heard growing up. Yeah, on yeah. The radio, so, Limbaugh said it all the time. You know, it's like, this yeah. is, those aren't new arguments. So, so the question is, um, you know, in some sense, how many people are um, actually, you know, abusing the system? Mm-hmm. Because in statistics, one of the really important things that I like to stress, again, technically, is we can make two kinds of errors. We can either not do something when we should, or do something when we shouldn't. So we can have a system where everybody is just gets through. We don't we don't weed out any cheaters, and they're clearly are cheaters. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, people are self interested. I, I don't say there are a lot, but but they're clearly. Are. Or or we can work very hard to weed out cheaters at, at the cost of um, losing a lot of non cheaters mm-hmm. or kicking them out. So uh, and that's a lot of the fights between you know, sort of the, the left and the right here. So one is the empirical question, how many people are cheating? So for example, we have these work requirements for um, healthcare, mm-hmm. okay? And people, you know, you, but you can look at the data. So this is not my own analysis, but reading other people's analysis. So what I'm good at is finding other analyses and understanding which ones make sense, is that very few people on various kinds of programs. In fact, are they're either working just at very low wages or they're disabled, they're, so you, you can do counts. And we have this incredibly great new sets of data from the government on you know big surveys of people on income uh, programs. We have the um, huge, the census has the American community studies, which talk to like a million people each year. So you have lots of new data and they make it available mm-hmm. in a way that a normal person can sort of consume. I, I try to get people to where I think they're normal, that is they can log in and work with the interface of the American community studies. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that um, you know most people are doing, but, but it's not hard. And I try to convince them they can do that. And then you can ask the question, is it worth it? So how many people are we weeding out and how many people were losing because the paperwork is too high? So when I said that everybody's rational, you know, they're also, for example, concerned with, with their time. They have limited cognitive resources. So, so the new buzzword is the time tax. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, that, no, I mean, sorry, you just keep, there's like red flags going off in my head of like yeah. all the things you're saying, like within so percussion, for example, I do, I do our finances, uh, or I manage our sort of budgets and reconcile checkbooks, all that stuff every, every month. When I first started the group, 
I would spend as much time as I needed to find the four dollars that were I couldn't find in the bank. Yes, you know, and and I stand by that. I learned a lot about, about that. Now the organization it costs the organization a thousand bucks a day just to exist. Yes, it's not worth my the organization's time for me to spend an entire day looking for four dollars. Absolutely. And so, like, but that uh, Neil, that was something I had to that dawned on me after doing that for like six months <laughs> and being yeah. like, why the fuck, why am I doing this? I'm, uh, I'm spending $996 to find yes. more. And, and many places don't. So my, uh, I'm continually audited on my travel expenses by NYU. Mm-hmm. And they want proof that I spend, you know, my, my credit card receipt that I spend $36, mm-hmm. but I actually charged to my credit card. It didn't just show up on the bill, but I actually mm-hmm. paid it. that I, I didn't somehow, <laughs> And, you know, I get a letter from them. I have somebody who does this, so they have to do it. They, you know, it takes me half an hour plus all of the service of, you know. You've, lost, you've lost money by justifying the third. Plus they pissed me off. So I say, screw it. I'm not going to, because right. everything, you know, depends upon um, people giving for free. Right. So mm-hmm. I, we, we all give a lot of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you say, screw it. They don't, they don't, you know, they're, they're this kind of organization. Yeah, I think my wife was once questioned. She took the subway. She was on a trip, and to save her company money, she took the subway in from the airport in Boston. Mm-hmm. You don't get a receipt on the subway. You didn't right, pay. Right, right. You probably at the time you didn't pay by credit card. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they questioned her. Yeah. So not only did it waste a hundred dollars, but it also pissed her off. Right. Well, and so again, the- so we have a lot of things where we know, for example that um, a lot of the work requirements in the South, because those are the states that are doing it, mm-hmm. are very onerous. You have to come in each month and uh, show that you've actually mm-hmm. worked so many hours per week. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're pretty good at keeping that. I'm pretty good at keeping that. Other people are less good. They have less time uh, to get in and things like that. And so they just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the number of people who don't apply for on their taxes um, the earned income tax credit, which is an incredible program. It's, it's the best welfare program, well, one of the best in, in, the, in the country. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's hard to do. And then, of course, the government, in its wisdom, uh, says, oh, we're going to audit these people because they're all cheaters. Mm-hmm. And because they're poor, they can't get, get very much out of them. Mm-hmm. Right? If they got everything, it would be, the, you know, the cost benefit analysis. The cost-benefit analysis of yeah. auditing someone who's so who's so these are things you can sort of get from numbers, and like so again on um, um, on debt repayment, you know, suppose we went from suppose we eliminated say that everybody above fifty thousand dollars. I said, well, they're rich. We don't really want to pay for them. Who are they first of all? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that they're because we know a lot because again the amount of data that's both collected and disseminated is amazing. Um, that they tend to be people who went for went to for-profit colleges. They didn't graduate because no one graduates from a for-profit college. Um, they have this huge amount of debt. They didn't get anything for it. And they're screwed. And they tend to be less well-off, more likely people of color, and so forth and so on. So those are the people you want to screw. I don't think so. There are a few people, you know, people talk about people who went to 
you know, NYU, whatever. But our average debt when people graduate is about forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, in spite of our crazy tuition, because nobody pays sticker prices. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, where do you want? Yeah, and then, so you can go through this and sort of you know draw the lines and say, okay, suppose we did it a tenth at twenty thousand. You know, again, who are we screwing? Who are we unfairly well, benefiting? The ben- I mean, the, we're using student debt here as the sort of uh, the, 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 the premise for how we would tease this out. Yeah. But this happened. I mean, you're, it strikes me that you're you're training students to go into a career that eventually some of them are going to be at levels of the federal government helping them figure out the cost benefit analysis yeah, of, so. of shutting down gyms and schools during a pandemic. Like somebody had to crunch those numbers, right? Like there was somebody yeah. at the level of Neil Beck at the federal government being yeah. like, well, let's game these scenarios out before we do this, right? Right. They did it poorly. Or at least I hope so. Yeah. 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 I'm not saying they did it but well. There's some very good economists who are arguing that shutting schools down didn't make much difference in terms of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but had enormous costs. Mm-hmm. And we've learned that. So we know the cost of shutting the schools down now in terms of, you know, just tests, just yeah. lost learning. We also know that there's not a lot of transmit, at least of this particular disease amongst younger people. Right. And so we've opened the schools back up. And we've also learned, so for example, um, the, the place we learned initially was from 1918, the mm-hmm. uh, 1918 flu. Mm-hmm. And different, again, so different places did different things. And it was well, you know, sort of primitive in terms of it wasn't like a causal experiment, a causality study. But again, we looked and said, okay, these places did better that closed things down. And there was a small industry in those kinds of things. How much of the, like the, the data, I mean, cause we did have some data from the 1918 flu outbreak or epidemic in terms of how to deal with what an ep- masking and like what <laughs> quarantining, like those, those sort of basic yeah. uh, lever- levers that we have in dealing with epidemics. I feel it's kind of what were the first two levers we went back to stay in your home and um, let's shut things down. Yeah. And, until I got the vaccine. Until, right. I'm curious how much of this data, like how long does that data stay in the social consciousness before fear takes over? Because I have a feeling, we're, we're, you know, there's going to be another pandemic in another 90 or hundred oh. years and we're all going to be back to square one again, Neil, and everybody's going to forget about what happened in 2020. 2020 well, you know? for everyone. Yeah. So hopefully, so a lot of policymakers, mm. you know, so, so again, which is not the world of decision makers. You know, so the story from 1918 was that these things actually work somewhat. Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, closing things down and uh, again, w- with very sketchy sort of evidence. And now we have more. So, I mean, people doing experiments mm-hmm. on, you know, different types of masks and which masks, you know, because people get them, you know, different people were getting different masks, you know, mostly in poor countries and so forth. So we have, you know, m- more evidence. And, you know, some of it is feeds uh, through. So like in terms of, you know, economic development in mm-hmm. poor countries, there are a lot of rich people like Bill Gates who actually want to do things where there's some evidentiary basis. Um, well, how do you how do you then like so let's say hypothetically you're at the level of, you know, you're in the room with you know, Joe Biden and the the energy secretary and all these other people, and everybody's trying to figure out this calamity that's coming your way. How do you, as someone 
like it's like me dealing with stage fright. Like I have a job to do, and so I'm going to be. Yeah, I'm nervous, but I've figured out ways to get through those those uncontrollable, irrational emotions, so I can do yeah. my job. When when decision makers are in the room deciding what they're going to do, how much do you have to push back against fear? Because okay. data and fear are, are, are like strange bedfellows. They do not hang out well together. So this goes back to political science. Yeah. So again, I said everybody is rational, sort of rational, mm-hmm. you know, close enough, that a first approximation. And so what is it that policy, politicians want? And so the current theory is that for elected officials, they want to be reelected. Mm-hmm. And so it's very hard to claim credit for something that didn't happen. You know, I, I put you through all of this crap. I made you wear a mask and things. And you didn't die. And that's pretty good. And as a causal person, we can say, okay, we talk about counterfactuals. What would have happened if we didn't do this? And we know that a lot more people would have died if we hadn't masked, that the initial shutting down was, was actually probably a reasonable thing to do. Not necessarily schools, but shutting down mm-hmm. businesses and things. But you're a politician, and you say, look, this could have been much worse. Say, you're a politician. You lie all the time. Why would I believe you? And, and we're going to impose these costs. That, that's the problem, like, with global warming. Mm-hmm. So, again, politicians have their incentives. Uh, th- they are going to be um, have another election, two elections, four elections, unless they're presidents, and they have one more if they're, you know, whatever. But eventually, they're going to be gone. And they're clearly going to be gone before the in the U.S. before the super costs are realized. Maybe for the mayor of Miami, you have to worry a little bit more. So we or know New, this. Or New York, for example, for that matter. Yeah, but, but probably later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so the question is, you know, how can we... So we know why they have these incentives to not act on these kinds of things. So either you have to convince people that there's some short-run benefit to doing these kinds of things, that there's green jobs, and in fact, these th- or these things aren't as costly or whatever. Or you, uh, you know, um, have to argue about, um, so a lot of the arguments are how much we value the future. So again, it's this combination of technocratic things. But again, you know, if, if I go in, if you went to Joe Biden and say, you know, you should use a discount rate of one percent instead of three percent and evaluating policies and he's not a stupid person mm-hmm. he would say that's not what i do and if he said to donald trump he was i don't know what you know mm-hmm. what you're talking about but one of the big things in terms of global warming is they changed how they evaluated policies mm-hmm. with a bigger discount rate that is how much the future is counted less and it turns out for global warming how much students do this exercise changing from one percent to three percent at 3%, 100 years just doesn't count. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we're going to talk about politicians if they're worried about the next election. The discount rate if you're president after the next election is, is uh, 100%. So, so, you know, so again, you have to design policies that are not going to be too painful you know, right now. And again, that's the, the trick is to sort of design policies that are not too painful and that sort of work. So again, you know, it may be that giving every, even though, you know, some sort of complicated means tested um, program, again, going back to debt relief would, would work, would be better. It's just too complicated. Well, or we, could maybe, give, 
or we could get we could install term limits <laughs> for for congressmen and women like like oh, the but that term, no, but we know that that turns out to to do worse does it that, really yeah because that we did we did that in california mm. that gives them shorter term incentives mm. re-election is good no political scientists study also all the time yeah, yeah. so various countries introduce term limits take them off what does that do mm-hmm. and uh politicians are more responsive when they want to get reelected. Well, I, that's, that is counterintuitive to me. Um, oh. you know, and again, like I'm, I'm a political observer. I'm, I, you, you clearly yeah. have studied this a lot more than I have. And, and Neil, yeah. just out of respect for your time, like I, I have respect for your audience. No, 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 no. This is like, I, I, I I don't. I don't know if you wanted to talk about politics, but this has been really. Oh no! This, I want to talk about political science. I try not to talk about politics. Well, the word political I, is in is in political science, so it's hard to tease those two two separately. Well, no, I mean, politics is what I think is right or wrong, or uh, yeah. whatever. I don't have any particular expertise there. As I told you in 2015, I was quite confident that Trump was a flash in the van, and uh, you know, so there are some things I know we should do. And like, for example, I'm going to end this here. Australia, which is my other country, because mm-hmm. my daughter and grandchildren live there. They just lend people money to go to college. Uh, when you, when you, they actually fill in your taxes. Mm. They don't have to fill them in. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, you had a loan. Your income was X. It's progressive. You're going to pay this amount. And it drives me crazy that we don't do that. And again, it's time tax. So why do I have to spend hours filling in my, you know, mm-hmm. you know, copying my ten, my W twos when the government has them? Yeah. And if they want to, you know, charge somebody for going to college, it's obviously fairer to make it means tested. Mm-hmm. We have a few of those programs, but, but they're taken up like by one percent of people because we make it hard for people to do that. Well, and if the government made it easier for us all to pay our taxes there would be a whole industry that would fall apart and that's called h&r block and yeah you know like again like as soon as you flush out it's like it's like being like let's it's like being like let's genetically engineer away the mosquito it's like have you talked to bats about that like the bats are gonna be pretty bummed (laughs) well bill gates is working on that yeah it's like no i know malaria sucks but also what happens when all the bats go away like there's gotta there's something else that's gonna happen as a result you know yeah. Okay. Um, well, Neil, this has oh, been really this great been chatting really, with you. Yeah. So, um, I love you guys. Thank you very uh, much. Well, the the feeling yeah. is mutual, and and um, we will um, we're starting to get back out into the world again. So, oh uh, yes, we've been to the theater a bunch. Haven't seen much music, but uh, well, again, it's trade off. When I go to the theater, I'm taking a risk. Yeah. Okay. Great Neil, talk. Thank you so much, my friend. Bye-bye. Stay healthy, and until next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Healthy. You too. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D U N L E A V Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, 
uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C H O W clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.